When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A lot of people, I think, when they think of voice acting, they think of the voice part of it and not as much the acting part. And that's not necessarily done with accents or with uh, pitch changes, but just with changing the character. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, Karen Hahn. Karen, it is so nice to be co-hosting with you again. Uh, mm-hmm. Before we get into the episode, whose voice did we hear at the top of the show? And where are some places we have probably heard her voice before? That was Erica Ishii. She is a prolific actor and voiceover artist whose voice you may have heard in games such as Horizon Forbidden West, Halo Infinite, Deathloop, Psychonauts 2, Apex Legends, Young Justice. The list goes on and on. You have probably heard her in something. You know, as soon as I'm done with Elden Ring, I'm on the final boss right now and I just need a friend to help me uh, uh, beat him or them, I guess. Uh, I'm going to be playing Horizon Forbidden West, which she plays a number of roles in. So I'm excited to check this out and excited to check out our Slate Plus segment this week, which is... So in the Slate Plus segment this week, we talk a little bit about their favorite performances from others, as well as a little bit about vocal warmups and just sort of, you know, being free with your voice. That is awesome. I would not want to miss that. And, of course, if you subscribe to Slate Plus, you don't have to miss that. You can just go to slate.com slash working plus right now and sign up. It doesn't cost a lot of money and you get access to everything behind the paywall at Slate. You get bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn, and uh, which is coming back soon, and Big Mood, Little Mood. And uh, you get to support everything we do right here on Working. So once again, go to slate.com slash working plus and sign up today. All right, let's listen in on Karen's conversation with actor and voiceover artist Erica Ishii. Erica Ishii, thanks so much for coming on Working. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to start with uh, the most recent game that I've played that you were in. Obviously, you have an incredibly impressive body of work. um, But very recently, I was playing Horizon Forbidden West, which is one of the big uh, releases of this year, a sequel to Horizon Zero Dawn. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like you did a little bit of uh, motion capture for that game. Am Am I right about that? Yeah, so I got to do uh, facial capture in the booth for it because I was mm-hmm. doing a couple of atmospheric characters, um, which was such an incredible, pleasant surprise because I was a huge fan of the first one. Yeah. Wait, so were you doing motion capture for or face capture for characters that you weren't voicing as well? No, just for the ones that I was voicing. And so they could get all of the mouth animations and the facial animations and and map them onto the characters. Can you explain a little bit about what that recording process entails, as it were? My experience is that uh, sometimes when you go in the booth, 
uh, they will put facial markers onto your face, you know, like you'll just draw on a bunch of dots on your face. Uh, and then you'll have like a head mounted camera, sort of like a selfie GoPro. Um, and it will map the dots. And then the animators will use that in aiding them to animate characters' faces. And it's really fun because it's kind of a, a cross between the uh, voiceover and the in the voiceover booth and then doing the mocap on the stage, which is the, the thing that you see footage of a ton with everybody's got the little reflective dots and <laughs> on, on their flattering lycra bodysuits. <laughs> um, and so this is a little bit of both of that, where it, it tracks, it captures the movement of the face, uh, but also is directly capturing voiceover in like a high quality booth setting. Mm -hmm. And this was my first time getting to do uh, the facial dots because I'd done other performance capture on the stage, but it wasn't capturing uh, my audio or my my face. And I'd done a lot of voiceover where it was catching my voice, but not any of my movements. And so this was the coolest thing to get to do <laughs> both. And for Horizon Zero Dawn. Yeah. And I haven't even gotten to to play a ton of it. Is it ever weird to play a game that you're in? It's very, very weird. I, uh, <laughs> you know, all all artists are a little bit self-critical. Um, I've heard it said that, you know, by the time you're done with a project, you've already grown as an artist, and that's why you really hate how you were on that project where you were learning, um, which is a nice a nice thought. But yeah. It does take me out of it a little bit because the thing about games is they're so immersive. And when you're in there, you're, you know, you are the character and, and you're living in this world. And then I'm like, oh, is that what I sound like? <laughs> yeah. I want to backtrack just very briefly. Um, you were talking about like how with voice acting, it is often your voice that gets captured and not any part of your physical performance. How much of that when you're in the booth are you sort of thinking about where it's like, I do need to still make this expression or it is still helpful for me to gesture in some way, even if that's not going to translate to kind of the final thing that the uh, developers are taking out of my voice performance? Oh, constantly. Um there are some times where uh, animators have captured video just for reference uh, to maybe pop in and give the character, uh, you know, that particular face when I say a certain thing. Um, but voice acting is very subtle. As somebody's done both on camera and voiceover, mm -hmm. voice acting is a lot subtler where where you have to really truly build the entire world with just your voice and so mm -hmm. if you're uh you know in the middle of something and you're kind of running you know your breath is very important and it just picks up all of that um mm -hmm. Or uh, smiling, you can you can hear smiling, and that's one thing that they say <laughs> in advertisements where you can hear the smile. Um, and you have to think about how far is the person you're talking to? What are is it cold? Uh, are you uh, moving around at all? There's mm -hmm. all these conditions that you have to adjust for with voiceover specifically um, that you have to actively think about whereas in on camera if you're you've been running your character's been running you've been running you have multiple roles in horizon forbidden west and i'm curious especially when you're in the space of one game voicing multiple characters 
What do you have to do to make sure that each of these things are distinct? Or what's your process for making sure that each of these characters is different, even though they are maybe smaller parts and all in the same world? A lot of people, I think, when they think of voice acting, they think of the voice part of it and not as much the acting part. Mm -hmm. There are some people that are just true chameleons, and, and you cannot tell that it's the same person. But a lot of times, it'll come down to the acting aspect of it. So I, you can have a character that still has kind of like a, a cool husky voice, but they'll be uh, shyer or um, you can age up a character or, or make a voice sound younger. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily done with accents or with uh, pitch changes, but just with changing the character. Mm-hmm. And it depends on if they're talking to each other or not, because if they're talking to each other, you got to make them sound real different. But uh, <laughs> sometimes they're in, you know, especially in a game like uh, Horizon Forbidden West, it's, you know, a massive world. And so if in a couple of side quests later, you run into a character that also has, uh, it sounds a little bit like me, then that's <laughs> probably, you know, there's 80 hours in there in, in the main quest. You're you're probably okay. And I want to ask about one, this is sort of a silly question, but a huge part of these big video games is barks, which for those who don't, who aren't familiar with the term is like the sort of smaller repeated dialogue. Like if you bump into a character, they'll go like, oh, or like, what, <laughs> why'd you hit me, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. But there's so many different variations of that. Um, I'm curious if you find that a fun or tedious or difficult part of the process. I love efforts and barks. It's, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, as somebody who kind of came up in video games and especially in military games or Mm -hmm. uh, fighting games, efforts, which are the efforts that you make when you move, uh, and barks, which are like grenade or get down, uh, you know, kind of become you know, part of your your bag of tricks and you, mm-hmm. you have to be able to sort of like slip into it and know, again, how far away, how projected is it? Is it, are you on comms? So you're, you're right in somebody's ear, uh, you know, like how much effort are you exerting? And just being able to pull them up really quickly and be able to go down the line on them because oftentimes you'll just get, most of the time it's just a spreadsheet. The, the script mm-hmm. is a spreadsheet, and they'll just kind of go down and highlight the box and be like, okay, we need uh, three getting hit. Okay, now three uh, hitting, uh, small, medium, large. And just being able to have that as, as like a – in your Swiss Army knife of tools is so important mm-hmm. because – there's different kinds of barks or efforts depending on what kind of game, you know? Is it a Japanese fighting game? Or is it, you know, like a, a grounded American AAA? Or, you know, and just sort of knowing what I want to hear in different games has been super helpful. Mm-hmm. I want to get a little bit more into um, your experiences doing body uh, motion capture because obviously like walk cycles are such a huge part of video games too where it's like making a character walk realistically. So like what kind of things are they asking you to do? Like is it having to learn fight choreography for a fight or is it getting those naturalistic movements or getting kind of the more outsized ones? What kind of experience have you had uh, in that field? So remember how I said that voiceover and on-camera acting were two 
very different kinds of acting. Mm-hmm. I would also probably put motion capture and performance capture yeah. <laughs> in uh, a different category from those two. Uh, because it really honestly depends. Uh, for motion capture, they're just getting sort of the movements, sometimes the stunts. Uh, performance capture, uh, you know, you're performing the entire scene and it is like more akin to stage acting than it is even to uh, film TV acting because Mm -hmm. you have to go through the whole script and you have to have it memorized uh, but it's you know, there, there's no stopping in, in the same way that there is uh, for film and TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some performers that are mocap performers that do primarily stunts and the walk cycles mm-hmm. and the physicality. There's some that do uh, all of it, uh, the voiceover and the uh, motion. I've gotten to do a little bit of all of it where, you know, I was doing mocap for somebody for for a character whose voice uh was already there or uh performance capture or uh you know the the facial capture where it's like just mm-hmm. the face dots in the booth um i love performance capture i love performance mm-hmm. capture it's like black box theater where you have to imagine everything and that's why it's more like mm-hmm. stage acting it's like right. you're in these v- very ex- vulnerable suits <laughs> and you have uh, not even real furniture, sometimes not even real items, um, and you just have to completely shut it all out and mm-hmm. recreate the environments and the circumstances and the physics of a world, a, a completely different world. So that's a, a whole other set of skills. And um, I have uh, sort of some martial arts training and Mm -hmm. some gun fight training uh, just because, you know, I do want to be in these uh, uh, serious shooty games. So that's those (laughs) important skills to have for it. Yeah. And I also want to talk about one of your biggest roles recently, which is the role of Valkyrie in the game Apex Legends. You said in an interview, she's one of the most real characters I've ever had the honor of portraying. Uh, And I was hoping you would talk to us a little bit more about this character um, and why, I guess, she is important to you. Valkyrie is... Yeah, Valkyrie is definitely the closest to my heart, Mm -hmm. in part because I wanted it so badly. You know, I I was a fan of Apex, and I actually had friends that worked on the game, both as voice actors and developers. um, And I I loved the world building, and I loved the representation that I saw, even at at launch. They launched with two uh, black women and a a gay man and a non-binary character, which I, I'm not sure. I think Bloodhound might have been the first non-binary character. And it was just so amazing for the people that don't normally get to play as themselves in these sorts of games to suddenly have a character that they that they could see themselves as, that they could see themselves being a hero or even in some cases a jerk and like a really complicated, <laughs> messy person. Mm-hmm. And that was one thing that really stuck out to me about Valkyrie is that Valkyrie was messy. I feel like You know, I'm sure you know that, you know, as an Asian femme, there are so few examples of diverse representation that when you have one, it's like they have to encompass all, 
of it, mm-hmm. you know? It's it's like they have to represent their people and uh you know be perfect or yeah really the weirdly cool monolithic thinking yeah mo- yeah very monolithic thinking is a great way to put it and and valkyrie is is kind of a mess you know she she's got daddy issues and she's a heavy drinker but like she's this also this ace pilot you know like they had they gave sort of references of of like maverick from top gun who's (laughs) super messy and uh you know uh starbuck and that's just not the kind of character that i would have ever gotten to play or audition for even uh, in coming up in on camera acting mm-hmm. and she's also queer uh, you know, she's a lesbian a, a, a very out and very loud uh, messy lesbian and that's just so she was so unique and she was so one of a kind and I also had the honor of getting to sort of work with the team on aspects of her personality mm-hmm. you know like um sort of little touches of lines that they let me uh, play around with. and mm-hmm. That's incredible. And I, I love hearing that you were able to sort of build that character with the team because I, f- I feel like that's it's always special when that happens. Yeah, and it's actually not that common for mm-hmm. a voice actor to get to have input at all in their character. Right. You know, most most of the time we come in a lot later in the process, uh, you know, or, or, or in, a, in a way that's like very removed from the whole development process. Um, and as I said, you know, we're reading down a an Excel sheet. You know, we don't know, necessarily know uh, what we're reacting to or mm-hmm. what the character looks like. But uh, for in, in some cases, like with Valkyrie, uh, there was there was a lot for me to go off of. Mm hmm. There is one part of what you're saying about Valkyrie that I want to talk about as well, which is you're saying that you didn't really feel like you had the opportunity to play a character like this who was so close to you and also kind of so real in the live action sector, as it were. I guess, well, how have you noticed like that changing both in the gaming industry and also like on the live action side as far as, I guess, playing characters who aren't supposed to be that kind of monolith or how common that is, rather? It's a completely different world than when I was growing up. Hmm. You know, the kind of uh, movies and characters that I see now and that I get to play in gaming Mm -hmm. are are just worlds away from anything that was available to me. I mean, I remember growing up and there was Sulu and the (laughs) Yellow Power Ranger and uh, Lauren Tom played all of the uh, Asian uh, animated characters. (laughs) She's a hero of mine. Um, And that was, you know, that was sort of the very narrow scope in American television and, Mm -hmm. and media. But now I think there's so much more attention to authenticity both in who's playing a character and uh their portrayal on screen or 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 uh in the game and so much more media being created by uh Asian Americans and and Asian diaspora and really like just the more voices you have in all aspects of it the better it's going to be there's there's more you're empowered to speak up more and mm-hmm. you and there are more uh stories by us you know and 
one huge shift was that we all got tired of it. We all got tired of it. And then we started telling the stories that we wanted to see in the world. Definitely. Um, and I, I do want to talk about uh, your beginnings as a voice actor, but I was also looking at your IMDb page and your first credit is a role on Full House, which is so, <laughs> so both surprising and funny for me to see. How did that happen? So I did the whole child actor thing. My, my parents were below the line workers uh, in Hollywood. They met. Uh, my mom was a film editor mm. and my dad was a camera assistant. Mm-hmm. So when I, at a very early age, I was very rambunctious and extroverted, (laughs) and I obviously loved performing, so they figured, oh, well, maybe Erica would like acting. And then, you know, I I did Barbie commercials and (laughs) uh, little educational films, and yeah, an episode of Full House is probably the the biggest one, and I still get 16-cent residual checks (laughs) from that one episode. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I loved it because, you know, I, I, I got to grow up around the showbiz, but mm-hmm. my parents were never pushy about it. They were just mm-hmm. like, well, as long as you want to do it, you can do that. Uh, and I did it. Like, I took a break from it because I was a very awkward looking teenager and I focused on uh, school and violin. But then, you know, I just I came back to it. It's just something that I knew that I loved. And I was very lucky to have parents that were supportive of that. Was there a particular moment after that break where you were like, I know that this is the moment that I want to go back in. I have to do this again now. Yeah, I was working as a temp for a contractor for a city business tax division. Uh, (laughs) It was, you know, I was, you know, struggling artist and stuff. It was I was lucky enough to be living with my mom, though, you know, like, an hour out of the city so mm-hmm. you know that's that's one thing that a lot of up and coming actors don't have that I was privileged to have but it was a rough time emotionally for me and I remember you know I, I was taking improv classes and acting classes I was I was still sort of going out for it on the side but I just had working full-time I had zero I, I had zero time to pursue acting and so mm-hmm. I quit and they were like we'll offer you more money and better hours and I was like no I hate it here and I'm gonna I've gotta try or I will never be happy for the rest of my life uh so I did so I got a catering job and went harder into acting mm-hmm. and yeah I got I got very lucky we'll be back with more of Karen's conversation with Erica Ishii after this This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. 
Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramps business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramps software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hey, listeners, you may have noticed that we have a new uh, bonus show every other week called Working Overtime. And part of what we're trying to do with that show is to answer listener questions and to help you out with advice on your creative problems. So if you've got something you'd like to tell us about or ask us about or a guest you'd like to recommend or, or something that's working for you or a problem that you are having drop us a line. You can email us at working at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 304-933-WORK. Oh, and by the way, if you are enjoying this show, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Now let's rejoin Karen's conversation with voiceover artist Erica Ishii. So what sparked... Um your interest in voice acting or what kind of made you think like this is a, a route that I really want to take. I, I've read that the game The Last of Us was a very influential uh, part of that decision. The Last of Us was the tipping point where I said, oh, this is specifically what I want to do and I am going to go into voiceover because I grew up loving video games and I grew up loving mm -hmm. animation. Uh, I actually have a family history in animation. My grandpa was an animator. Mm. But, you know, it's a different track than on-camera acting, mm -hmm. you know, because there is an expensive buy-in for your your first voiceover reel is going to be about... 800 to $1,000, and you got Oof. the equipment, and it's a different kind of acting that you might t need to take lessons for. And, you know, so, so, and I didn't want to like split my resources, but I just had to, you know, I, I had to go after voiceover in that way because The Last of Us and, and, some other games around that time just showed that you could really have some meaty, interesting, complex roles in video games. And I just I wanted that so badly. And and so getting to be in The Last of Us 2 was mm -hmm. kind of my benchmark of, oh, I yeah, I'm getting to do this. <laughs> Um, and I also wanted to ask, I, I think the answer um, might be no, just based on what you were saying about voicing the atmospheric characters. But do you have a different approach for TV or film versus video game rules when it comes to uh, voiceover work? The difference of animation versus video games is is significant, actually. Okay. But mostly it's, it's about genre. Genre is almost more important than whether it's TV film versus video games mm -hmm. because yeah like uh, knowing whether it's a nickelodeon show or some sort of grounded uh netflix cartoon gotcha yeah but but generally the things that i tend to get cast for um both in animation and 
games is uh, sort of like, oh, we're looking for grounded and more realistic, <laughs> you know, just because I have that kind of voice. And I can do cartoony voices and I have done like children and uh really broad characters, but I, I think where my voice comfortably lives and where people hear me and think, oh, we should bring Erica into audition for this is from, you know, sort of realistic and grounded games. I'm also curious about, you've, you've done some dubs for uh, some animes. Um, for listeners who might not be as familiar, it's the process of taking a show that's originally in a different language and then doing the English voices for the roles over it. Uh, I think most recently you played the role of Artemisia in Fina, Pirate Princess. And I wanted to know what it's like to take on a role where it's already sort of predetermined how a character is going to sound and then working kind of within that space. For dubbing, it's kind of a toss-up on whether they want you to sound like the original voice actor or not. Mm -hmm. I tend to get cast uh, when I when I do dubbing as characters that are sort of tougher or have lower voices. Um, originally, I thought that I'd be doing like sort of anime ingenue roles, <laughs> like uh, young girls. Um, that was before my voice sort of got even lower and before, <laughs> you know, and before I realized, you know, the, sort of my, my skill set lay in, in more serious and tough characters. But the technical skill that anime really uh, requires is timing, is right. being able to act within a small space um, you you match the lip flaps, so so you mm -hmm. watch the animation back, and you have to match the uh, translated dialogue to the animation that's already there, and that is such a technical skill. And I have so much respect for anybody who uh, you know does that uh, for dubbing. Like you'll see people just fly through those scripts and and. Like, be able to, to see it through once and then perfectly match the dialogue um, while uh, conveying an emotion. And that's, that's an incredibly technical skill. Mm -hmm. I, I haven't done as much dubbing, um, to be honest with you. And it's anime companies don't pay very well uh, for <laughs> dubbing, uh, despite the fact that anime is this huge and booming industry. Mm -hmm. And that's that's one thing that I know a lot of anime actors are pushing on and finally speaking up about. Yeah, uh, that's actually something that we talk a lot about on working the idea of like time versus money, like how much time you can afford to spend on a project you might really want to do if it's not paying you really well, especially because so much of the creative professions um, that we cover are fields where you're not necessarily salaried and you have to sort of build your income by yourself as opposed to relying on a single source. How did you navigate that kind of earlier in your career in terms of what roles you wanted or wanted to take or didn't want to take, but maybe had to as opposed to now? Like, do you feel like you have a little more freedom? Yeah. I mean, as an actor, especially starting out, you just say yes to everything. Although mm -hmm. I will say that I have never knowingly taken a role um, where the character was black or Latinx. Mm -hmm or a marginalized culture that I have no claim to. Mm -hmm. And that is something, look, if you're an up-and-coming actor and you got to do it, like, I, I get it. Like, you got to pay your rent. And I will never judge somebody for that. But I 
for me, have always valued authenticity mm-hmm. in roles. And, and so that's one rule that I am hard and fast on. And even earlier on, you know, d- turned down things that were pretty big where I was like, I don't, I wouldn't feel right about this. Mm-hmm. I would say that now, yeah, just just being able to do all union work, mm-hmm. getting to gravitate towards characters and and specifically target audition for characters that are interesting to me and mm-hmm. not audition for every single uh right. you know uh soldier number 1 <laughs> sort of role is an immense privilege cuz I remember I remember starting out when I'd get a like maybe one voiceover audition a month or so. And so mm-hmm. every single one was so precious and I'd like try my hardest at it and I'd like want it so badly and I'd accept almost any of the auditions whether it was for for um something non-union or or mm-hmm. you know tiny characters that maybe weren't as exciting to me but yeah, now realizing, okay, like if I miss this one job, it's not the end of the world and I can, I can still pay my rent is mm-hmm. such a, it's still so wild for me. I don't know if I'll ever quite get used to it. Yeah. And I think also like coming to a place where you feel comfortable negotiating for what you've set as your rate is also really huge because especially again, early on, you're like, any money is still money and I will take that. But figuring out like, what you've said, like, I, I still feel nervous, like when I have to negotiate for that kind of stuff, where I'm like, oh, like, I shouldn't ask for more, because I'm lucky to be getting paid anything at all. Oh, that's why I got a guy for that. You know, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, you know, shout out to, to my agents, you know, over, over at A3, you know, coming up, you know, it, it's like they I, I told them, like, I don't want to take these kinds of roles or like I, you know, and when I told them like, oh, uh, send me non-binary or gender fluid stuff, they were like, Gotcha. We understand mm-hmm. completely. We're going to pitch you correctly. Um, and my manager, who is my ride or die over at Bohemia, um, who, yeah, like has backed me up in so many negotiations, but also in saying no, because saying mm-hmm. no was hard and saying no to work, even to things that I wanted to do, but that were like, okay, like I my bandwidth is stretched mm-hmm. or uh, I want to do this, but they're really not paying like a fair wage mm-hmm. is like having somebody else to be the bad guy for you is, uh, you know, I well worth the percentage that they take more than <laughs> worth it, more than worth it. Um, but yeah, it's I, especially in. You know, in freelance, because, you know, I was also doing just freelance, non-acting and non-performing mm-hmm. jobs before that. And, you know, having to advocate for yourself is terrifying and not always feasible because you do, you know, there are times where you just do need the money. Or in the case of uh, acting, you need the exposure. You need the exposure mm-hmm. or the experience. And there's something to be said for paying your dues, right, of, of you know, volunteering on your friends' projects and, you know, getting that reel together. But then past a certain point, it's exploitation. It's exploitation. Yeah. And people, even in the come up, I, I hope, will be able to advocate for themselves because, you know, it, it's a labor rights 
issue. Mm-hmm. And, and it's about sort of holding employers to a certain standard and, and asking for your worth. Mm-hmm. Was there a specific point in your career where you sort of started thinking about that more? Because, again, I, I do feel like, especially early in any given art, creative career, it's you almost aren't thinking about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At first it was, you know, I, I used to be like, hey, I'll do anything. I'll say yes to anything, right? Mm-hmm. You say yes to everything. You pay your dues. And then it became, okay, well, I do need it to be one of three things, which is um, it has to be something I am, like, very passionate about, you know? Mm-hmm something I care about or with friends or it has to be exposure or good for the brand and like really good. We're not talking like, hey, you know, you get an IMDb credit (laughs) or number three, it pays, you know, and it pays Mm -hmm. fairly. Um, And it had to be one of those three things. And then I remember the years that that it had to be two of those things. And then Mm -hmm. now it kind of has to be all of them, especially working on union projects. You know, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a set union rate. And uh, I mean, for voiceover, I'll still pretty much take any union job (laughs) because I still I love being in video games. Thank you so much again, Erica, for coming on the show. It was such a delight to talk to you and a very eye-opening conversation as well. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Karen. I loved this conversation because you really helped illuminate a kind of acting that most of us experience all the time, but probably don't think about, namely the voices we hear on video games. So I'm going to start with a doozy, the $10 million question in the age of motion capture and face capture, when the voice body and face of a character might be supplied by three different people and then animated and altered later, what even is acting and what is good acting? I guess to start kind of at the beginning of what you're saying, I think you sort of have to take it part by part. Ideally, obviously, all the components of a performance like this will be um, will work seamlessly together, but that's not always the case. Obviously, if you're only supplying one of these components, that's the only part that you have any control over as an artist. And I think ultimately there's no harm in singling one point out, like saying, I really loved this voice performance, but I thought the animation just wasn't there. And I also don't think that compartmentalizing like that means that 
it's bad acting just because mm-hmm. there's so much that's gone into it. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's also the same thing, I think, like when you say like, I didn't like this movie, but I really thought the score was really good or I thought this one performance was really good. Um, but I guess, quote unquote, good acting for me can be boiled down to how much you believe that performance to be true as opposed to thinking, oh, that's a person doing a performance. Yeah, totally. You know, for me in video games, it's often when they've over animated the gestures because real people (laughs) don't move their arms all the time when they talk. But in video games, you're almost like, are you doing calisthenics? Like, what is going on? Because, you know, like everything has this, you know, this key gesture. I loved Erica's adage that when you look back at your past work, you're mm-hmm. not being super critical of it because it's bad. You're super critical of it because you've grown. Yeah. And, and that reminded me of another thing that people told me as I was finishing my book that, you know, you have to become the artist worthy of the work. Mm-hmm. I grew a lot writing my book. You are closing in on the final phases of mm-hmm. yours and Mazel Tov on that, by the way. Thank you. Are, are you <laughs> feeling any of this right now? Definitely a little bit, but weirdly, I think I felt it more in the second or third kind of draft edit phases as opposed to where I am right now, which is the proofing phase. It's been sort of a comfort for me to go through proofing because as I've read over the chapters to catch any like last small mistakes, I've sort of been like, hey, I I think I actually did a pretty (laughs) good job with this book. Um, I feel like the reaction that we're talking about right now where you can be very critical of something that you did in the past, not because it's bad, but because you're better now, I feel it a lot more in terms of my past cultural criticism. And I think that is partially due to the fact that I just couldn't spend as much time on it because a lot of the stuff that I was doing when I was still really in the thick of media and the journalism, you get the assignment in the morning, you finish it by like 3 or 4 p.m. and then that's it. That's all you can do on it as opposed to this book, which I been working on for almost two years yeah totally totally i when i got my first page proofs i was like oh no i failed (laughs) this book is a disaster but by the end of the process i felt really good about it so i'm I'm glad but no i know what you mean like you look back at an old piece and you're like the me of today would have done a better job with this right Uh, you know this review of whatever this movie is or whatever yeah for sure although I, I'll also say that I, I had a sort of comforting moment recently because one of the top top editors that I only email with like kind of when things are in final stages or big decisions he emailed mm-hmm. me recently and was like hey can I talk to you about like another idea and I was like oh Whoa. if they're saying that then that means I did a good job with this one hopefully that is amazing that's so great um your discussion of barks and efforts was a mm-hmm. good reminder of exactly how much work goes into making these things. And that work is done by hundreds of people, many of whom are non-union and working crazy hours. You know, we were we were talking yeah. about Elden Ring right before we recorded this thing. And I mean, that's a vast world. And it feels like someone has thought about every blade of grass in that game. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, my wife was surprised to learn that Elden Ring costs the same amount as other games. She's like, shouldn't oh, it cost yeah. more given how huge it is? I was like, actually, no, they all cost 60 bucks or whatever. Yeah. Uh, as you've learned more about the industry and how it works, has it changed the way you view games, either while you're playing them or reviewing them or whatever? Yeah, uh, actually working on a video game and writing like the scripts and barks and efforts, it has really Mm -hmm. made me appreciate the work that goes into a game a lot more. It's sort of like, this is sort of circular thinking, but once you actually make the sausage, you really appreciate how the sausage gets made. Yeah, totally, totally. And for like barks and stuff, now that when I'm playing games and I hear 
this kind of like background dialogue sound really effortless and also not repetitive. It makes me really, really impressed because when I go in and try to write that stuff, it's so hard to come up with these variations that sound fresh or otherwise like aren't really awkward because you're laboring to say the same thing in a different way. Um, And then there's also stuff like knowing that people have to write with what assets are made in mind. For instance, like the video game that myself and my writing partner were working on, there were some lines where we were like, oh, can we talk about like a soda can? Like, does that asset exist? And they were like, yes, but you can, if you want to talk about like a label or a brand, you can only do these three things because that's what we have. That's what we've made. So there's a lot to think about. That's wild. I also love when you exhaust the dialogue tree and then the guy's just (laughs) repeating the like, I think that mine's full of ghosts. (laughs) maybe don't go in there (laughs) yeah exactly exactly um i really appreciated your discussion with erica about the ways in which representation Mm -hmm. has changed that you know when there's fewer roles for a specific identity group each of those roles takes on this huge burden of representation and then that that lightens a bit and makes both writing and performing freeing and easier as more characters and stories come into play. And I, I think a lot about what you've done on this show since you took over as co-host that, you know, you're featuring a lot of Asian women and, and, and through that you're showing like an enormous amount of diversity. And so not, none of those guests have to check every box, you know, they can just mm-hmm, kind of be mm-hmm. themselves. Uh, Erica seemed very optimistic about the moment we are in and, and the progress we have made. And I was just wondering how you're feeling about it. Overall, I really agree with what they were saying about being like optimistic about progress, just because I think it's a huge thing that progress is being made at all, because for, for such a long time, it just wasn't. Yeah. But I will say that I feel cautiously optimistic because there's kind of a twofold trap in the way that we think about this kind of thing. I think the one our inclination to not say anything critical about something that is diverse because it could be viewed as forcing a step backward or saying it's bad because of this. For instance, like when Crazy Rich Asians came out, I think it was so hard to say it's an okay movie. It's not a masterpiece just because it was so important that this was like the first movie in such a long time or ever that had an all Asian primary cast, an Asian director. That was huge. And it felt like you couldn't say anything bad about it because it would be taking a step back in some respect. It's so funny you say that because someone got mad at me on a podcast when I said that I thought it was an okay movie. So like, I know exactly the thing you're talking about. Or um, when the all-female Ghostbusters came out, which is also like an okay, maybe a little less than okay movie, but like people had to talk about it like it was much, much better than it actually was, you know, because they felt that pressure. I think it it kind of ate itself in that respect where it was either you have to say you love it or people hated it for misogynistic reasons. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Where I was just sort of like, well, it does seem like they cut some important scenes out. Like the movie almost (laughs) doesn't make sense. Like that was my critique of it. It wasn't like women can't be funny. Right, right. Like it's so hard, especially now. I think it's hard to critique anything, like regardless of what it is, just because of the way that internet culture has kind of progressed Mm. to where they're a lot of people seem to think there is just this binary of I love it or I hate it, which is not really how you should approach art. Um, But as far as what I was saying, I think the second part of the trap 
is that the corporate instinct to any successful project is generally to take the wrong lessons from why it was successful. Like, I think the most recent example is Everything Everywhere All at Once did so, so well at the box office and is also very critically acclaimed because it's a great movie. But then there was that variety piece that was like, it's successful because people love multiverses. And it was like, no, 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 no. Like, that's not the lesson that we should be taking away from this film. Like, the reason that people like it is because it's so fresh and original and also because it's addressing these ideas from a very specific point of view, from a specific like Asian immigrant point of view, and particularly from like this middle-aged mother and her daughter's point of view. Like that's what makes that movie great. It's not that, oh, there's a million multiverses. Like that's not what we should be taking away from that. Also, it's like, as anyone who grew up watching Hong Kong cinema could tell you, like Michelle Yeoh's a fucking star. She was already a fucking star to like billions of people. And it was just sort of about time that America figured that out. You know, it's funny. The other thing that you say there that is that I I just want to underscore, because you and I are Mm -hmm. both critics as well as creators, Mm -hmm. that this really points to why, one of the reasons why you need uh, diverse critics, beyond the fact that we need diverse critics anyway. There's a million different reasons, including it's the right thing to do. But one of the reasons is so that actually people aren't afraid to say like, yeah, this thing doesn't work that well. They don't mm-hmm. feel that same pressure, you know what I mean? Because like, like, yeah. you know, they, 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 they could be more honest about the work they're seeing. But it's also like sort of on the flip side of the coin. It's like if you just produced more Asian art, like we wouldn't feel no, the no, need no, no. I agree with that. Pedestalize like crazy Asians. Like yeah. just let give the creatives a chance to actually make stuff, and then you're sort of bypassing one of these huge problems just completely. Yes. Um, I loved their description of the arc of a career being in part about the increased freedom to say no to things. Yeah, It was such a realistic and refreshing way to think about it. You know, early on, you say yes to everything unless it crosses some personal ethical line. And in their case, it was, I didn't want to play someone from a marginalized community who wasn't Asian, right? Which makes total sense. And then as you go along, you start to learn how to say no to things and you start to make the kind of money, Mm -hmm. hopefully, in part thanks to unions, where you can say no to things. And um, I personally, I have to say, I feel like maybe I guess my second book's out, so I'm probably like like a (laughs) mid-career writer now. And I still find saying no to things to be an incredible challenge. I'm still like so grateful that someone wants me to do something. I have to wait a second and be like, do I even have time to do this? You know, Uh, (laughs) what about you? You know, you're finishing this first book. You know, how are you navigating this? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with everything that you and also Erica said, where it's like, it's so hard to say no early on. And I think especially if you don't come from a place of privilege, even in your mid or late career, it's still hard to say no, because you were still thinking about, oh, I should be making money. I should be spending this time doing something that will support me so that I can live and eat <laughs> comfortably. Right. Um, that said, I think it's gotten easier for me to say no to stuff because I've learned more about the industries that I'm in and I'm a little more clear eyed about the things that people want me to do. For instance, like being asked to talk about something Asian culture related because a publication doesn't have any Asian writers on (laughs) staff or being asked to come on a podcast that has never reached out to me before, specifically because they're talking about something that has Asian influences or characters in it. Like I appreciate the invitation, obviously, like the fact that you thought of me and thought I would make a good guest is really flattering and is something that's valuable to me. But at the same time, I want to know that this is not something that you are doing specifically because you need to check a box. Like if I'm looking at past pieces on the site or past episodes and the only times that 
a POC, like freelancers or writers are brought in is for those things. Yeah, that, that just really, feels like tokenism, right? It feels really, really bad. And yeah. I, I, I remember seeing like a lot of tweets. About, I see these tweets every Black History Month where black writers are like, editors, please just hire some black staffers instead of only giving them assignments this month, which is so, so true and so, so depressing. That said, on a broader level, I'm I'm learning to say no to stuff for other reasons. For instance, like just not having time to do it or not really being interested in the topic that I'm being pitched. Um, and that is really only possible because I have a cushion because I am have achieved like some relative success in my field and also because I have a very supportive partner. If I didn't have those things, it would be impossible for me to turn things down. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I just think it's a real weird as you enter your mid-career. I'm in the middle of it now, and you as a mm-hmm. younger, more precocious and accomplished person are in the middle of it now, too. <laughs> no, that's it's not just, true. It's just a weird thing to just be like, oh, actually, I don't want to do this and don't have time to do it, and it's okay for me to say no. It's also, we're speaking about it very generally, but there's so many factors, too. Like, if someone came to you and was like, we'll give you $50,000 to write a book about a topic that you're just lukewarm on, it's still going to be really hard. Because, like, a book is huge. Yeah, like if someone came to me and said, here's $50,000 to write about Crazy Rich Asians, I don't don't know that I'd say yes to that. Well, also, you probably shouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you're the right person to write that book. Isaac, I love you so much, but... I am definitely the wrong person to write that book for all (laughs) sorts of reasons. That's all the time we have this week. If you've enjoyed this show as much as we have recording it, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And yes, once again, here's the Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus subscribers get a cornucopia of goodies, including full access to the website, bonus segments on shows like this one, bonus full episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you get the best thing of all, feeling morally superior to your friends and loved ones because you're supporting great work all over this site, including what we do right here on Working. Go to slate.com slash working plus to sign up today. Thank you so much to Erica Ishii for being our guest this week. And thanks, as always, to our incredible producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with Isaac's interview with Steph Paines, the founder and guitarist for Les Zeppelin, the all-female Led Zeppelin experience. Until then, get back to work. dun dig dig dun dig dig dun dig dig dun dig dig dun Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.